Hi, this is Kevin Murphy, and welcome to Ethics Lab Essentials, offering the foundational episodes, CME accredited, that explore the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. If we are intervening, if we're doing all of the education that we're supposed to be doing in the communities, and we're making all of the things available, why do these disparities still exist? Ethics Lab Essentials highlights guests, lead contributors, and topics that are foundational for listeners like Healthcare Ethics Committee members, healthcare professionals, and members of the public. To obtain CME education credit, please go to our website at missiononline.net and click on the Ethics Lab Essentials icon. Educational credit can be obtained by completing an online pretest, post-test, and evaluation along with listening to the episode. Facilitation guides and other helpful links to each topic are also available at the episode webpage. Health disparities and health outcomes for African Americans is egregious. A 2019 report identified that African American adults compared to non-Hispanic white adults are 44% more likely to die from stroke, 20% more likely to have asthma, 40% more likely to die from breast cancer, 25% more likely to die from heart disease, 52% more likely to die from cervical cancer, 23% more likely to be obese, 72% more likely to be diabetic. Regarding pain medication, a 2019 published article offered that the pain of African Americans is systematically underdiagnosed and undertreated. Our guest today will offer stories and discuss insights of -of end-of-life care in the African-American community. Our guests are Patrick Smith, who teaches at Duke Divinity School and is associate faculty with the Trend Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine at Duke University School of Medicine. Dr. Farah Kurlan is the Josiah C. Trent Professor of Medical Humanities in the Trend Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine and also co-director of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School. And Claretta Dupree is chair of the Academy of Fellows at the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity at Trinity International University, Deerfield, Illinois. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. What are the common misunderstandings that exist on the part of caregivers regarding African-American patients at the end of life? One of the most common ones among professionals is that everybody, more specifically Black people, want to stay alive no matter what. That the the end goal is always just to keep living. Um, And to that end, many Healthcare professionals wrongly think that no matter how bad the prognosis, that uh, life-sustaining treatments are desired by everybody, and that's just not the case. Claretta, there are many historical events that have created this gap. Is there one or two you would focus on? Well, I think one of the big things was 
when the Patient Self-Determination Act was passed as, as a part of the government budget back in 1991, it, it was this push to get people more involved in end-of-life care of family members and of themselves. The whole thing was we can make this law and then doctors will have more frequent and better conversations with their patients about what things they desire at the end of life. And of course, it was precipitated by the Karen Ann Quinlan case and the Shivo case, where there were people lingering who maybe shouldn't have been lingering in that uh, never space of uh, not quite dead, but not really living. And so then when it was presented to the African-American community as you have the rights to um, end your life, you have the rights to refuse life-sustaining equipment, and you don't, then like, wait a minute, we don't even have access to all of these life-sustaining treatments. Why are you now pushing us to say we don't want them? And so I think that that was a big gap right there where you're saying, let's address this when you have not addressed the things that should come before. Patrick, what would you point to to explain that gap? Yeah, Kevin, thanks for that question. I would love to uh, pick up uh, with respect to some of the um, questions of what is kind of a misunderstanding with respect to professional caregivers dealing with end-of-life care with African-American communities. And of course, that community is not monolithic, so it's very diverse, uh, very broad. I have people from different walks of life, uh, but there is a large segment of that population uh, who rely on religious and spiritual beliefs uh, and cultural values. And a lot of times, those who are professional caregivers I have a tendency to think that uh, those who have these religious views will have a tendency, as uh, Coretta was saying, to want to linger, to do everything possible to maintain their lives. And one of the challenges that we often wrestle with, uh, at least in um, the spaces where I work, is trying to help people see that their spiritual beliefs are Uh, Christian beliefs, let's say, in particular, does not lead to a kind of vitalism, right? Which just means that uh, you keep the body, you know, going at all costs without any other considerations whatsoever. Uh, And then also when the spirituality uh, in the African-American Christian experience is expressed through song or Bible reading or prayer, um, sometimes people get nervous uh, saying, are they praying for, you know, a miracle or healing in some way when, uh, according to medicine, there is no healing that is forthcoming, uh, so to speak. And it's just important to uh, remember that those expressions oftentimes, though maybe not always, but oftentimes are an expression of their deep faith in God and their cry uh, for help that uh, they need God to break into their situation, even if God does not heal Right, or cure, uh, but there is something um, uh, that takes place that's transformative, not only for patients, but also for families as well. Do spiritual beliefs play a role with some? Would giving up on care be understood as giving up on God by some? 
Yeah, I think for some uh, that that may be uh, the case, but I think for others, they come to grips with issues of dying uh, and death. Uh, In many instances, unfortunately, you know, suffering is not uh, kind of a foreign experience. And oftentimes the religious faith that comes out of African-American experience certainly has, you know, prepared some communities and some families and some patients for that. Uh, again, as you mentioned, Kevin, in your question, that that's not always the case. But one of the things for professional health care uh, givers, I think, is important to realize just the language that we use. So when dealing with African-Americans uh, in end of life, as Claretta was saying a little bit earlier, there's this uh, tension or this suspension, suspicion where we were not granted full access to health care uh, when we were relatively healthy, now that we're dying, you're trying to usher us into this this you know hospice or palliative care only approach, not recognizing that there can be some benefits to the quality of life that they have for whatever life is remaining. And so oftentimes, I challenge and encourage medical professionals not to use language with patients, their families, as there's nothing more that we can do for your loved one. Uh, I think that has that deep sense of abandonment. Uh, and sometimes people may want to dig in their heels uh, as a way of saying, hey, don't abandon my loved one. But the language could be, we need to maybe change the kind of care that we are now providing for your loved one, uh, that we need to take some other measures to ensure uh, that this journey can end as well as it possibly can given the very difficult situations that families and patients sometimes find themselves in. Could you offer clinical experiences where you have noticed that gap between clinicians and African-American patients? I've practiced hospice and palliative medicine for more than 10 years, first on the south side of Chicago and now in Durham, North Carolina. And most of my patients have been African-American. And I have observed that there's a non-trivial proportion of the African-American community that sees hospice as going into hospice as a a way of not really continuing to maintain solidarity with their loved one and um, give them the benefit of the doubt, continue to care for them in the ways that medicine allows, um, utilize all of the resources that can be a benefit to them. And I think I've heard many patients over the years or their caregivers express a concern about hospice and tell a story, um, something like, well, I had an aunt and she uh, had advanced cancer and she was fighting the good fight and went on for a year or more. And then they talked her into hospice and two weeks later she was dead. Um, or two days later she was unconscious on high doses of morphine. And uh, they have observed in their own experience what they see as a kind of ushering patients into death rather than caring for patients who happen to be uh, facing death medically. So that's a concern that is not specific to African-Americans, but I, I have seen it among my African-American patients uh, quite prominently. And I think a, another thing, uh, Kevin, that contributes to this larger um, issue of experiences um, that lead to some of the misunderstandings or the tension that exists between um, caregivers at times and those in the African-American community 
is the long history of the racialized imagination and how it plays itself out uh, in various clinical spaces. Um, you know, we may uh, recognize the fact that we have to just recognize the fact uh, that there's a long history uh, of those dynamics uh, in this country and that there has been no aspect of our public, private, civic life that has been uh, unaffected uh, by these ways of relating, at least uh, in the United States context. Uh, it was interesting, just a few years ago, there was an article uh, in the Proceedings of the National Academy and Sciences of the United States of America uh, that basically dealt with questions of racial bias and pain assessment and treatment recommendations. And so in there, uh, there was this uh, discussion that a number of uh, white lay people and medical students, as well as residents, continue to hold uh, false beliefs about biological differences between blacks and whites with respect to how they experience pain. Uh, this study went on to show uh, that the findings demonstrated that those beliefs predicted racial bias, not only in pain perception, but also in treatment recommendation accuracy. And so this was just in 2016. And these are ideas that have been shaped uh, for um, centuries uh, in this country, just about um, uh, the way we, we present. And I do think that history is not lost uh, on various communities and those um, kind of stories uh, and some of the suspicions that some communities have when they engage and encounter um, the healthcare system, uh, unfortunately persist. Claretta, you talked earlier about the issue of access could you talk a little more about that? So I think that even emphasizing what Patrick was just saying, the continuing statistics, and they come out pretty much every year, shows that there are disparities in all areas. There's disparities in access, morbidities, comorbidities, mortality rate. All across the board, you can see the disparities. And so the question gets asked, well, if we are if we are intervening, if we're doing all of the education that we're supposed to be doing in the communities and we're making all of the things available, why do these disparities still exist? With the access part with regard to the uh, black community, part of it is a fear. So there's this fear from white healthcare professionals, which is the majority, that the Black community will not accept what is the preferred treatment or what is the recommended treatment. So let's not present it at all, because I don't want to get into a fight with them about uh, whether or not to keep treating mom or dad or whether or not to put them, take them home. I don't want to get into a fight with them. So I'm not going to, to present options to them at all. And I think that that one, one thing is a problem there. The fear of communication problems, the fear of being misunderstood, the fear of maybe horror of horrors being called a racist because you don't misunderstand you don't understand where the people are coming from and so the access with the end of life in addition to those misunderstandings there goes back to 
access to healthcare, period. We don't have access because some things are just not available in some communities. So now you you add that on to the end of life. You're like, okay, we're not going to be able to treat this in any kind of successful way. And so now you're taking away something that we never had to start to start with. So I think that to start at the end of life and say that we really have to do a better job with end of life care in the black community, which is absolutely a true statement, but it can't start at the end of life. You have to start at the beginning of life. I am wondering what are the key aha moments that you have experienced? These publications came out after the Patient Self-Determination Act. Everybody was doing these research studies about advanced directives and all, and publishing these studies that said that Blacks and Hispanics wanted aggressive, life-sustaining treatment, no matter how poor their prognosis. And some of the articles went on to to actually say that they wanted to be put on machines, uh, ventilators to be kept alive. And I read those studies and I thought to myself, well, I'm Black and I don't feel that way. And none of my family that I know of feels that way. And that's when I undertook my own research in the Black American community to find out what is the prevailing thought and attitudes, because it didn't, that didn't ring true with me. So that took me in a different life's direction, actually. I remember a aha moment on the south side of Chicago. I was taking care of a woman in hospice who was close to 100 years old and visiting her every month or two in her home where she was being cared for by one of her granddaughters. That granddaughter was in her 40s or 50s maybe, was working full-time as a social worker on the south side of Chicago, caring for her own family, and also reaching out and caring for other elderly family members who were suffering various forms of advanced illness and aging. And this patient had very advanced dementia, so much so that she could not speak. She could not move herself almost more than just a a twitch or a slight grimace and move. She had to be hand-fed, and yet she was in beautiful condition in terms of her skin, her clothing, her cleanliness every time I saw her. And what struck me was watching this granddaughter clean her mom, I'm sorry, her grandmother, when she'd had a bowel movement, incontinence, and watching her talking to her, her grandmother with the sweetest words, touching her, rubbing lotion on her, moving her about to get her clean, pulling the covers up around her and radiating something that I have seen countless times in patients in, uh, in hospice work, but particularly it seems to me among my African-American patients and their families, 
radiating a sense of appreciation that grandmama is still with us. So often when people experience that, the tenor is they're gone. This is just dragging on and on. Can it be over sooner? Why are we having to go through this? But this family, and I've had many other families like this, just expressed how glad they were that grandmama was still with them and uh, they're grateful for her presence in their life. That stuck it really stuck out to me. A second aha moment was when I was called to uh, give a palliative medicine consult for a patient in one of our hospitals. And the story I was told by the clinical team was this patient has advanced dementia and um, is here in the hospital yet again with an infection. And would you please talk to her son because he seems to be really in denial about the state of her illness. And I went and looked at the record and basically found a woman who was, as mentioned, with profound dementia and debility, but had a pretty basic urinary tract infection that led her to be in the hospital. And when I called the son, he was quite clear. He said, Doc, listen, I'm not trying to get a lot of things done for my uh, mom that are not going to be helpful, but I'm grateful for her life. And if you have something that's not too burdensome that will benefit her, I want you to do it. And I said, well, what about the DNR status? Because that had been bothersome to the team. And he said, listen, if my mother gets sick and needs to go to the ICU, call me. I will come in. I'm not going to belabor this, but I don't want her to be DNR because I don't want a public symbol that we're sort of uh, treating her as if it's time for her to die. That also reflects, that episode reflects a kind of pattern that I've seen, not with every patient, but with a number of patients. And it is, um, don't emphasize um, what you're not going to do because my loved one is so diminished. Emphasize what you can do for my loved one, whom we are grateful is still with us. If you were asked to mentor a clinician, what advice would you offer them? Um, I would say, you know, pretend you are a uh, researcher a phenomenological researcher where you have to bracket anything you know about the specific phenomenon that you're going to research. So look at this family as that phenomenon and bracket anything you think you know, because we, it, there is no one size fits all. Like Patrick said earlier, there, there's nothing that can be said that then you can say all Black Americans, all, everybody in the African-American thing, you, you can't say that. So I would say put aside what you think you know about end-of-life care and the Black American community and go in with a clean slate and see what the family's needs are, see what the family's beliefs are, see what their desires are for the care that should be given to this person at this time. I would certainly encourage them to focus on uh, not trying to draw limits on what we're going to do, but instead taking the responsibility of making a recommendation about which forms of medical care are likely to be beneficial. And I have found that 
patients who at first blush seem to be resistant to what their physicians recommend often are very accommodating of those recommendations when they're put in candid, straightforward language about what is going to be helpful to the loved one at this time. A second thing I would encourage is that when families use language, and this is particularly true, it seems to me in my experience with African-American families, language about spiritual matters, when they talk about God having the last word, when they talk about praying to the end, when they talk about that it's not the physician's authority to decide whether mom lives or dies, that's in God's hands. To not react to that as if they're in denial or expecting a miracle or um, somehow moved into some sphere of non-rational speech, it's it's almost never that that's the case. But in fact, um, there are large segments of our society, including uh, my own community and uh, a Christian community, where people learn to talk in that kind of language as a way of just reminding each other that it is true, God is going to have the last word. And that practically, the question is, how do we keep faith with this loved one and demonstrate the right kind of solidarity with them in this moment? So. Don't be put off by that kind of language. Instead, candidly ask folks, tell me what you're thinking about. What do you mean? What is it that's important to you? And then candidly give your recommendation to people so that you uh, can negotiate an accommodation that you can both live with rather than kind of getting lost in uh, misunderstanding, talking past one another. Patrick, what would your advice be? Yeah, I would say um, uh, it'll be hard for me to expand uh, any more beautifully than my two colleagues have done with regard to, you know, this medical professional. And the only thing I would add to that is just to, you know, always remember uh, that we're entering uh, into their space, into their world and into their journey in some ways. And they will have to live with uh, those narratives long after we are off the scene, right? To be very uh, mindful of that, especially for clergy. I mean, I, you know, Kevin, I grew up in the home of a pastor and I remember uh, the times after church having to go over to uh, people's homes who were maybe, we had this category in our church called the sick and shut in, right? Uh, so oftentimes deacons would go over and do, you know, communion and so on and so forth. And then oftentimes my dad would do house visits and often we would have to come along um, with that and uh, with him. And and oftentimes these folks were gravely ill. And when you walk into the house, you could not help but understand that death was really approaching, that death was looming uh, over this home. Uh, over this house, uh, over this person. And I remember those uh, conversations that we were having, uh, my dad was having with these particular folks. I remember the questions. I remember the verbal expressions of faith. I remember the laughter. I remember the tears. Uh, I remember the singing of songs around the bedside. I remember the reading of favorite passages of scripture Uh, I also remember, Kevin, the calling in of family members who were located in other parts of the house and some of the kids who may have been playing outside to come together and hold hands when offering prayers uh, for strength, courage, and peace. Uh, I remember that, and that has profoundly shaped the way I uh, think about Christian practices coming together at the end of life, how we can embody those as a community. And my encouragement to pastors will be, look, 
we have to think seriously about what it means to die well to the glory of God. What does that mean to engage in that process and those practices uh, as a community and to think seriously about that and to weave uh, those resources, right? To weave those experiences into the liturgical life of the congregation and to reach out and to be comfortable in healthcare spaces, in hospitals, to reach out uh, to those professionals, to develop strategic partnerships so that each community is not foreign to the other. I know each of you were also mentored by Dr. Richard Payne. Could you introduce him to our listeners and tell me what his mentorship was like? He was a giant in the field of treating pain and particularly in um, making sure that effective pain relief was extended to communities that might not have otherwise had access to it. Um, One of the things that was particularly unique about Dr. Payne was he spent a lot of energy, uh, particularly over the, the last 15 years or so of his medical career in reaching out to congregations, including African-American, predominantly African-American congregations, to bring some of that education um, in helping people make sense of what resources are offered when you have advanced illness, how palliation works, what hospice is, what advanced directives do, and what the options for them are. And he did all that, I think, in a really, um, in a really striking way insofar as he didn't come to sort of just tell people what they need to know and what they need to believe to kind of get on board with managing the end of life in the way that the healthcare system hopes people will. But rather, this Rich's spirit was always one of wanting people to be able to find ways of getting through this life, including the experience of advanced illness, including the experience of caring for a loved one who is very debilitated by advanced illness as best they could, and that they'd be able to make use of and have access to the best available resources for treating pain, for managing care at the end of life. Um, Not that they had their arms twisted in that direction, but they would have the options and have the information they need. Yeah, uh, two two things. Uh, one, yeah, I, I'll share in just a moment uh, this little phrase we used to use with respect to Rich Payne. Uh, but the other thing I will say is that um, you know Dr. Payne in some of our circles has been described as one um, who was committed to being a minister of the body and a physician of the soul. And I think some outside of a particular setting might think that we got it backwards, right? You know, minister of the body, physician of the soul, that doesn't sound right. Shouldn't it be physician of the body and minister of the soul? If not, then maybe the phrase minister of the body and physician of the soul should be understood in a way that brings together two things that Richard Payne was very, very committed to and very serious about was yes, taking medicine and healthcare and science very seriously he read a lot of science. He took the benefits of medical technology and the impact that it can have on people's well-being very, very seriously. He did not disparage that. And he also challenged people when they did uh, disparage those resources. But he was also one who was a physician of the soul who really uh, saw fit to deal with the spiritual concerns and the issues that emerge not only throughout a person's life, but certainly as it emerges uh, at the end of life when certain existential 
existential kinds of questions perhaps become uh, more pertinent in a person's heart and mind. And a lot of his work helped facilitate those conversations uh, so that we could all uh, take those issues much more seriously, uh, perhaps uh, going forward. And so in that sense, he was a holistic uh, palliative care provider as a minister of the body and a physician of the soul. If you didn't know, if you met Dr. Payne and you didn't know that this was Dr. Richard Payne, Hmm. you wouldn't know that that was Dr. Richard Payne. I mean, (laughs) it was so unassuming. He was just like a regular person who was just doing his job, you know, and then you're like, oh my God, that's Dr. Richard Payne. He's done this, 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 and this, and he's written this, 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 and he's the, you would never know it. He was just, he just went about doing what he did. Um, and and he was, like uh, Patrick described, he was very serious about the importance of what he was doing, but not in a way that elevated himself at all. Is that right, Patrick? Did I get that right, kind of? Oh, a- absolutely. You know, he was such a big person that made everyone else feel bigger than they really were when they were around him. You know, I often say that early on when I was around him, I felt like a, a sophomore high school athlete who had been embraced by a professional athlete. The youngster tries to play it cool while remaining starstruck, you know? Right. And it, it, it's, it's fascinating uh, at some of the memorial services that we had for uh, Rich. Uh, it was no secret that a verse that many people identified with him, his life, and his legacy is Micah 6 8. And I'm sure that the listeners of this podcast would be familiar with that. And it reads, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And for so many of us, if that does not summarize the life, the legacy of Richard Payne, uh, I'm not sure uh, if anything else could. appreciation to our guests and listeners on this episode of the Ethics Lab Essentials podcast. Thanks, everyone.